Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years' War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One, Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Spanish-American War, which originally aired as one episode on the 11th of June, 2012. Hello and welcome to part two of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the Spanish-American War. Last time both Spain and America built uneasily towards war, as pressure campaigns at home, on both sides, exposed the pro- and anti-war camps. It wasn't until a series of suspicious accidents brought the ongoing Spanish-American negotiations over Cuba into question that President McKinley pushed for war. It was time, at Spain's expense, for America to acquire its place in the sun. With varying degrees of optimism and caution, America's burgeoning war apparatus whirred into motion as it faced the old regime of Spain. With so much on the line, the war began. Let's investigate what represented its opening phases, as I take you to late spring, 1898. War should never be entered on until every agency of peace has failed. U.S. President William McKinley Commodore George Dewey was in charge of the fleet fueling at Hong Kong when he received the news he had been waiting for, that his country was now at war with Spain. 
Hong Kong was an international base for many European fleets to refuel at, including Germany's. Before he left, the German Kaiser's brother, Prince Henry of Prussia, had said to Dewey, Well, Commodore, good luck. I may send some ships to Manila to see that you behave. To which Commodore Dewey replied, I should be delighted that you do so, Your Highness, but permit me to caution you to keep your ships from between my guns and the enemy. Dewey took the scepticism of United States success in the war in his stride. He later recalled, The prevailing impression, even among the military class, that we were going out to our own destruction. This illustrates the fact that few European nations believed that Spain could succeed in a long war, recognising that America's resources would eventually overcome it, but that Spain could force peace if it defeated America decisively at the beginning of the war, and that was what many European countries were expecting to happen. Spain had supposedly discovered the very lands Americans now lived on. It had traversed the oceans of the world and created one of the greatest empires known to man. It would win in tried and tested battle tactics what it could not achieve through weight of numbers and resources. Spain's only real chance of success in the war lay in its ability to hold back America long enough for the war to become unpopular for Americans and in Europe. However, it simply couldn't do that. Spain did not have the means at its disposal to beat America in 1898. The Spanish navy was, on paper, quite powerful. It was expected by many observers of the war, Germans, Russians, British and French, to fare far better than it actually did. Nobody expected the awful disasters which befell the Spanish navy. Before the war had started, a popular fear in America was that the Spanish guns would bombard the coastal American cities and destroy American shipping. Little thought had been given to the fact that the Spanish boats would be so busy trying to defend their own possessions that they wouldn't even dare move against other targets. In short, Spanish strategists knew that Spain would be fighting a defensive war. Dewey's fleet sailed towards the Philippines once the war had been declared, and began engaging the Spanish fleet docked there that night. On the morning of the 1st of May, the most important naval battle of the Spanish-American War began. The Spanish had 40 ships, all small, old and possessing lower calibre guns than the 10 American ships they faced. These American ships were the result of the shipbuilding enterprises that had sprung up around the 1890s, which we mentioned in the last episode. They were huge hulking vessels made of steel, containing large guns and modern signalling equipment. It was an example of old versus new, in more ways than one. In all ways, though, it was a catastrophe for Spain. One needs only to compare both accounts of the battle from the two men on either side, Commodore Dewey on the US fleet, and Admiral Montojo on the Spanish fleet. Dewey, in his report to the naval staff, noted that, At 11.16am I returned with the squadron to the attack. By this time the flagship and almost the entire Spanish fleet were in flames, and at 12.30pm the squadron ceased firing the batteries being silenced and the ships sunk, burnt and deserted. In comparison, the Spanish fleet was not having such a good day, as Montojo noted in his report to the Spanish court. At 10.30am the enemy returned, forming a circle to destroy the arsenal and the ships which remained to me, and opening upon them a terrible fire, which we answered as far as we could with the few cannon which we still had mounted. 
there remained the last recourse to sink our vessels, and we accomplished this operation, taking care to save the flag, the distinguished pennant, the money in the safe, the portable arms, the breech plugs of the guns and the signal codes. After which I went with my staff to the convent of Santo Domingo de Cavite to be cured of a wound received in the left leg, and to telegraph a brief report of the action with preliminaries and results. The Spanish fleet had been so completely outmatched by the Americans that Dewey had decided his fleet could have a break for breakfast. The Battle of Manila Bay was a vital one in assuring American victory and all but guaranteeing Spanish defeat in the war. Montojo, in the final lines of his report, noted, It remains only to say that all the chiefs, officers, engineers, quartermasters, gunners, sailors and soldiers rivaled one another in sustaining with honour the good name of the navy on this sad day. The inefficiency of the vessels which composed my little squadron and lack of all classes of the personnel, especially master gunners and seamen gunners, the inaptitude of some of the professional machinists, the scarcity of rapid-fire cannon, the strong crews of the enemy, and the unprotected character of the greater part of our vessels, all contributed to make more decided the sacrifice which we made for our country, and to prevent the possibility of the horrors of the bombardment of the city of Manila, with the conviction that with the scarcity of our force against the superior enemy, we were going to certain death and could expect a loss of all our ships. The Manila garrison did not surrender until August of 1898, however, demonstrating that the Spanish had more determination and heart than they were often given credit for. Guam, the other island in the Pacific which America had its eyes on, played host to a somewhat hilarious event. Due to its isolated position in the Pacific, the Spanish garrison on Guam did not know that a state of war existed between America and Spain. So on the 20th of June, an American fleet, led by Captain Henry Glass, who commanded its lead ship, the USS Charleston, began firing on Fort Santa Cruz. The Spanish, in response, sent two officials out to the American ships, not to tell them to go away or surrender, but to apologise. The Spanish officials thought the American ships were giving them a military salute, and they had sent out these men to apologise for not returning the salute because they were waiting for their harbour guns to receive more shells from home. Captain Glass explained, probably hiding back a smile, that before they restocked their ammunition and returned the salute, they should surrender Guam and the garrison of 54 Spanish soldiers since, hey guess what, we're actually at war. The Spanish complied and within a few days an American flag was raised on Guam. After the successes in the Pacific Theatre, American attention turned to the Cuban Theatre. Here the scene was somewhat more intimidating for American strategists. Spanish soldiers were heavily dug in and supported by coastal artillery and its Caribbean fleet. Nevertheless, by the 24th of June, the Americans had established a base of operations on Cuba, just east of Santiago de Cuba, the city they planned on capturing. The Americans had every reason to be confident. They had seen the Spanish roll over at sea. But things did not go smoothly for the Americans on land, because they were fighting an entrenched, experienced and camouflaged Spanish enemy. The Spanish had learned to fight in the terrain after so many wars in Cuba, and now it was the Spanish turn to inflict casualties on the Americans. The American force which had landed contained US Army divisions, which included the 1st US Volunteer Cavalry, numerous coloured US divisions, and additional reserves, 
and were accompanied by Theodore Roosevelt, who later wrote a report of the battles that he took part in here. Now for my favourite part, lol. A word on the equipment is now necessary. Though you might expect the Americans to possess the most modern arms after seeing their advanced navy, the Spanish soldiers' equipment was nearly a whole generation ahead of the Americans. The Spanish used the modern Charger-loaded 1893 7mm Spanish Mauser rifles with smokeless powder, while militia and irregular troops were armed with the Remington Rolling Block rifles with the 43 Spanish calibre also using smokeless powder and brass-jacketed bullets, which increased their stopping power. In contrast, the Americans were outfitted with 30 caliber Krag Jorgensen rifles, which had a slower rate of fire, and in the worst cases, with the 45 caliber Springfield single-shot black powder rifles. From looking at the American weapons, one thing was very clear. In terms of soldiering, it seemed as though they were still living in the Civil War era. The American rifles took longer to load, they jammed frequently in the climate, and they let out clouds of smoke upon firing, negating any chance of camouflage or an element of surprise. The Americans used Civil War tactics as well, mass infantry charges composed of brave but ultimately doomed men charging uphill at a dug-in and well-prepared Spanish force. With tactics and equipment like this, you may be wondering how America won at all. There are numerous reasons for the American victory in the Spanish-American War. Before we get into any battles, I'd like to go through a few of them. The Spanish psyche was a major factor. The Spanish government back in Madrid was resigned to the belief that, no matter what happened in battle on land or at sea, America would eventually win. This state of mind meant that the average Spanish soldier's attitude to battle was never one of a normal soldier. It was either one of suicidal, bitter sacrifice or of a reluctance to fight in a hopeless war for a hopeless cause. The Spanish soldier knew deep down his country could not win the war, and such a realisation cannot be underestimated when analysing Spanish moves. It meant that American soldiers would either be facing fanatical, patriotic, motivated martyrs, or complacent, half-hearted soldiers intent only on self-preservation and putting up a limp example of what they could actually do in battle. The calm and collected soldier Spain had enjoyed in the past was gone. The only solution for the Spanish soldier, according to the Madrid government, was either to die in the battle or run away. But what of the Americans? As if providing a stark contrast to his foe, the American soldier believed in his cause, believed in eventual victory, and would have been encouraged by his previous victories at sea. The Spanish soldier had no such reassurances to fall back on, though. You see, American soldiers weren't actually equipped to fight a war in 1898. They were equipped to fight another civil war, as we saw, but they made up for this disadvantage by holding on to their core beliefs and their own eventual success. They had morality on their side, so they thought, because they were defending a subjected people from Catholic tyranny, so their cause was just. Americans moved with purpose, confidence, and an eagerness to teach the evil Spanish a lesson, and the Spanish limped on with the defeatist, wounded and demoralised belief that, win or lose the battle, they were destined to lose the war. Such points, again, cannot be understated. Distance to the conflict also helped, of course, as the logistical problems facing the Spanish were not faced by the Americans. Cuba was days away from Spain, 
from American Florida, it was only hours. In addition, while the Americans never had superior equipment, they could almost always depend on superior numbers. Americans on land may have had inferior equipment, but they at least had plenty of it, while in contrast resupplying Cuba was complicated for Spain by numerous naval defeats in the Pacific and a fear that had been ingrained of combat at sea with the Americans as a result. On the 1st of July 1898, 15,000 American troops fought two battles in Cuba. One of these was for the north-south ridge, two kilometres east of Santiago de Cuba, in a battle called San Juan Heights. The other was for the northwest flank of Santiago, and was called the Battle of El Caney. Of these, San Juan Heights is by far the most important and decisive. However, I'm afraid I'll be differing a bit from the usual tradition that I've established by now of my mind map. Instead, I'll outline a summary of the battle. Santiago de Cuba was the end goal of those American troops who had been landed in Cuba's east, but to get there they had to remove the Spanish from the hills surrounding the city. But the Spanish were dug in, and they knew the terrain well after years of fighting in it, so this task wasn't going to be easy. On top of this, they also had the technological advantages as I explained earlier. But what they did not seem to have was the desire to win. The Spanish general in charge, Arsenio Linares, placed just 760 Spanish regular soldiers on the San Juan Heights on the 1st of July to hold back the far larger American and Cuban guerrilla advance. Back in Santiago, Linares had 10,000 additional regulars and reservists, which he could have deployed, but chose not to. Perhaps he was trying to save them for a later battle, but more likely he was trying to save them from what Linares knew was a hopeless cause. But you see, it didn't Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com have to be so hopeless. The 670 Spanish soldiers were entrenched and for the most part confident that they could hold the ridge. That they did for many hours enduring reckless American charges by cavalry and infantry alike. Imagine what would have happened then had even 5,000 Spanish regulars been committed to those heights. The turning point of the battle was the American soldiers' utilisation of the Gatling gun. 
the one technological advantage that the American soldier held over the Spanish. That said, though, the Americans still lost 200 out of their 1,200 men that began the attack on San Juan Heights, but the noise and firepower of the Gatling guns saved the day for America, as the Spanish tried in vain to withstand a weapon for which tactics had yet to be invented. Okay, so I lied about mind maps, but this one is pretty easy. Just so you can imagine where the two battles on the 1st of July took place, imagine this. So a map of Cuba is in front of you, and if you can imagine Cuba is shaped like a capital L, which lies horizontally, with the tail end of the L pointing down on the right, then Santiago de Cuba is the vital city which is positioned at the east end of it, next to the coast at the bottom part of the tail end of the L. How would you describe it? Like the sticky out part of the L that's kind of, you know, it makes it look like an L rather than a a, a number one or something. Okay, so zoom your focus in onto Santiago itself. Remember, Santiago is positioned at the east end of the L. Santiago has a natural harbour to its west and is surrounded by Spanish forts, placed to take advantage of the hills, which hold the city in a kind of basin. To the east of Santiago is a group of the most prominent hills, and around these hills a river or two runs, but these rivers are largely irrelevant. Just remember that the Americans will have to cross them before going up the ridge to fight the Spanish at San Juan Heights. Okay, so can you picture Santiago in your head? If you're a bit lost, just remember those ridges east of Santiago are quite important for the coming battles. The battle for San Juan Heights takes place at the south end of these ridges, while the other ones like El Caney take place on the northern tip of them. Still with me? Or still completely lost? Either way, let's go back to the battle. After the costly victories, the Americans were halted by a solid Spanish defence around the ring of forts surrounding Santiago. Interlocking firepower became a severe problem for the Americans, as each fort the Spanish held was in artillery range of the other, meaning that each fort could support the other. The Americans then demonstrated their lack of preparedness, as many soldiers began to die from the various fevers or mosquito-borne diseases associated with such a climate. Guantanamo Bay had been chosen to protect the United States fleet during the summer's hurricane months, and had been seized previously on the 10th of June, 1898. Then, the Spanish lost another crucial sea battle near Santiago's harbour on the 3rd of July, isolating the Spanish forces left behind. They would later surrender, but not before a severe outbreak of yellow fever among the American forces left the situation hanging by a thread. The decision was whether more Americans should be landed, or whether the islands should simply be abandoned once the Spanish had been defeated. The Spanish garrison were also exhausted, but the Americans who had once enjoyed a presence of 15,000 soldiers on Cuba's east side alone were dropping like flies from disease. Various appeals were sent home for relief, reinforcements or even withdrawal. A certain Theodore Roosevelt described the remaining American soldiers as an army of convalescents, noting that 75% of the American force suffered some kind of illness. The decision to withdraw from the defeated island of Cuba was approved by McKinley personally on the 7th of August 1898. The Americans did leave behind a few soldiers to hold on to the island, but the general consensus was that Spain was defeated. Word had gotten out around the world about Spain's disastrous defeats at American hands, 
prompting many European states to recoil in shock that one of their own had been sent packing so quickly by a non-European power thousands of miles away. In spite of this shock, though, many analysts within Europe advised Spain to sue for peace quickly before somebody back home in Europe started to get anxious about all the action going on in the Caribbean and how they couldn't be part of it. What made matters worse for Spain was that America seemed to have a perfect plan for each of their possessions. Just as Cuba's future was being debated in Madrid, it was learned of that Puerto Rico was coming under attack. 3,300 American soldiers were landed at Puerto Rico on the 25th of July, 1898, under the command of General Nelson A. Miles. Puerto Rico was garrisoned far more efficiently than the other Spanish possessions, however, and the Americans encountered stiff resistance from both Spanish regular and loyalist Puerto Rican auxiliaries. Before it had been invaded, Spain had ordered some of the 1st Puerto Rican Provisional Battalion to reinforce Cuba. This unit would suffer up to 70% casualties from the Battle of San Juan Heights, weakening the potential power of Puerto Rico to resist as a result. Once Puerto Rico was being invaded by American troops, the Spanish governor of Puerto Rico, Manuel Macias y Casado, declared martial law, determined to resist the American forces. He declared... Providence will not permit that in these countries which were discovered by the Spanish nation, the echo of our language should ever cease to be heard, nor that our flag should disappear before the eyes. Long live Puerto Rico, always Spanish. Long live Spain. His words may have had some effect, because the Spanish and their allies fought with a greater sense of determination than they had done before in the war. They made the Americans fight hard for every bit of land that they took. However, at the same time, it seemed like both sides wanted to avoid the same casualty levels as the San Juan Heights, as both sides often retreated due to an injury within one army or the other. For example, in the 6th of August Battle of Guamani River Bridge, the Americans suffered seven men wounded, the Spanish 15 men wounded and one killed. The Americans won the battle, but it was not exactly a crushing defeat for the Spanish. But it became clear that, in the Puerto Rican campaign at least, the Spanish soldiers knew what they were doing. They kept retreating deeper into the interior of the island, forcing the Americans to follow them. Fighting had been relatively inconclusive throughout the Puerto Rican campaign, but the Americans suffered a loss in the not-war-altering Battle of Fiardo. However, even though the fighting in Puerto Rico was intense, the American superiority in numbers was beginning to tell. This did accelerate the Spanish desire for a peace treaty, which it sought through international means. On the 12th of August 1898, a truce was meant to be implemented, upon which time the Spanish and Americans were supposed to stop fighting each other, at least until a formal peace treaty could be arranged. By this point, Spain was in a far less advantageous position since the beginning of the year. With its fleets destroyed in the Americas and its soldiers spread thinly across slowly losing fronts, there seemed little hope for Spain's diplomatic clawback. While the negotiations were still going on, the United States annexed Guam, the Philippines and Puerto Rico into the United States' sphere of influence. Cuba was a more difficult issue though, since Cuban independence was a popular idea among American citizens, who generally watched the ensuing diplomatic dancing with interest 
trying to get as much information as possible from the various outlets in an effort to see that Spain got what it had coming to it. Spain's penalties for engaging in a war with the US were its complete loss of its colonies of Guam, the Philippines, Cuba and Puerto Rico, its crushing loss of international prestige, and perhaps most humiliatingly, its new commitment to pay the $400 million debt incurred nationally by the newly independent Cuba. Queen Regent Maria Cristina, the same Queen Regent who had appealed to her nation's patriotism before the war's outbreak, now telegraphed an almost heartbreaking statement to her diplomat participating in the negotiations, a man by the name of Eugenio Montero Rios. Rios then recited the statement within the conference at Paris, which said, The government of Her Majesty, moved by lofty reasons of patriotism and humanity, will not assume the responsibility of again bringing upon Spain all the horrors of war. In order to avoid them, it resigns itself to the painful task of submitting to the law of the victor, however harsh it may be, and as Spain lacks the material means to defend the rights she believes hers, having recorded them, she accepts the only terms the United States offers her for the concluding of the Treaty of Peace. After reading the statement, Rios was said to have been inconsolable by one of his assistants, and it's not hard to see why. His country had been handed its most horrendous humiliation in living memory. Rios was not alone in his feelings of sickness and shame. Some of these feelings were shared by those in the American camp too. Senators George Frisby Hoare and George Graham Vest were outspoken opponents of the treaty. Hoare was recorded to have said upon learning of the terms of the treaty, This treaty will make us a vulgar, commonplace empire, controlling subject races and vassal states, in which one class must forever rule, and other classes must forever obey. Supporters of the treaty pointed out that the only alternative was continuing the war, something which would have been severely damaging to America's idea of prestige and, well, mercy. So on the 18th of December 1898, the Treaty of Paris was signed by the United States and Spain. The latter was, at one point in its history, a worldwide juggernaut, sailing all around the globe and claiming an empire overseas never before seen in the European consciousness. The former was at one point in its history a prosperous colony, merely a facet of the British Empire. The very first settlers in the New World had no idea that they were taking the first steps in creating a world power, but 200 years later they had achieved their own independence, and only a century later they were making moves on the world stage. Moves that used to have been made by Spain, moves that the world was used to seeing Spain making, but which would now have to adjust to the idea of a large, new nation, born completely onto the world stage, once the old world had been beaten by the new. Spain's defeat in the Spanish-American War meant that its very national and cultural foundations had been torn down. No longer did Spain have any justification to point to its American colonies. All it had now were its minor possessions in Africa. In short, it was a profound shock to Spain's national psyche and provoked a thoroughgoing philosophical and artistic re-evaluation of Spanish society known as the Generation of 98. 1898 being the year, of course, that the war occurred. 
While Spain looked inward, focusing on how to stem the tide of its now breathtaking fall from international relevance, America looked outward. It had annexed Puerto Rico, Guam and all of the Philippines into America's control, and despite the Teller Amendment which had guaranteed Cuban autonomy, a bill was passed shortly after the war called the Platt Amendment, which increased control by the Americans over Cuban affairs, a notable example being the American leasing of Guantanamo Bay. The war had other purposes for America too, though. In terms of healing those Civil War wounds I told you about, the Spanish-American War worked wonders. It was just what the doctor ordered, in a sense. The Civil War had done a lot to unravel the bonds between the individual states and the average American citizen, but this war had united the population behind a common cause. America was a nation now. Instead of living in the past, America was looking to establish itself as a world power to last long into the future. It was a good thing that it had settled its affairs at home, because just as the Americans had started to come together and work as one, they were beginning to receive challenges from new and somewhat unexpected sources. Cast your mind back to May 1898, just as the Battle of Manila Bay had ended with such awful results for the Spanish. As ships all over the world moved to inspect the new situation in the important Manila Harbour in the Philippines, and just as the Americans settled in to besiege the Filipino rebels, with whom they would fight a bitter guerrilla war for the next three or four years, Germany tried to make use of some gunboat diplomacy in America's newest acquisition, As more and more ships from Germany piled into the Manila Harbour, Commodore Dewey became worried as to the Germans' intentions. He tried repeatedly to signal the lead German cruiser, the Cormoran, but the vessel ignored him. Dewey was growing irritated and impatient with the German moves, so to get their attention he fired a warning shot across the Cormoran's bow. That stopped her in her tracks and the Americans boarded her, ensuring her plans were not leaning towards war with America, or simply complicating the siege of the Philippines. The German admiral, Otto von Diedrichs, protested and organised a meeting with Dewey. Dewey said to him, If the German government has decided to make war on the United States, or has any intention of making war and has so informed you, admiral, then it is your duty to let me know. And then Dewey added, But if you intend to fight or not, I am ready. Diedrichs was flabbergasted. He had not expected such a reaction from the Americans at all. He'd only gone there to test the waters of American tolerance, primarily due to the belief that if Berlin acted quickly, it may be possible to seize the Philippines for Germany. But he did not think that the Americans, who seemed suddenly so capable of making war, would prove so resilient. If you cast your mind back to Prince Henry of Prussia's remarks that The Germans may one day arrive, just to make sure that the Americans were behaving, then this makes sense. This anecdote from Manila Bay proved just how far America had come on the world stage, though, because the greatest military power in Europe, i.e. Germany, had its bluff called successfully now, and this represented a victory for the new American departure in foreign policy. Washington was more aggressive, assertive, and confident after 1898, This change, coming off a great victory against one of Europe's oldest nations, demonstrated to the world that America had arrived in the camp of the great powers.
Well, folks, that's the end of the episode. So thank you very much for listening to this remastered series of the Spanish-American War, complete with all its nostalgia and much emotions. If you'd like to know any more about this, or just want to comment on it in general, make sure to contact me through the usual channels. But until then, my name is Zach. Thanks for listening, and I will see you all soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.